brother Derek. How you doing today, sir? Well, it is Pride Month. It's a gay pride. It is Pride Month. Big Pride Month. I don't know if we're doing any events up here in Boston area, but I do see that a lot of the population is vaccinated at this point, and therefore a lot of outside events are opening up, and not as many masks outside I'm seeing. My gym actually just uh, stopped enforcing the whole mask thing if you just bring in your little... Uh, vaccination card so it's starting to look like a life post pandemic mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully if we can't have any festivities this month maybe later than the later in the year we can actually have these pride events that we usually look forward to i uh, i definitely right. missed pride interfaith last year well hey let's go ahead and uh, jump into uh, the content for this week we are going to be in doctrine and covenant 63 but before we do want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Again, we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 63. So uh, what's going on here? At, at this point in the story... In the saints' history, there is uh, apostasy, rebellion, and also a lot of anxiety about how to establish Zion, when and how they should go to Missouri, how they are going to fund Zion and move there, what they should do with their property in Ohio, how they're going to raise the money to purchase land in Missouri, where the saints remaining in Ohio are going to live when Isaac Morley leaves, you know, just a lot of stuff like that. Section 63 is basically addressing the pressing questions about Zion. And uh, we're going to see that a lot of the actions that the saints are going to take moving forward are uh, motivated by this particular revelation, Doctrine and Covenants, section 63. Well, I want to start with verses 8 through about 12. This is, um, th these verses are about sign seeking. And the Lord may be speaking specifically about uh, those like Ezra Booth, who joined the church after seeing Joseph Smith heal an arthritic person. But it seems these folks are growing uh, dependent on these signs to build their faith. And the Lord ain't having it. Uh, let's go to verse 8. Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. Uh, let me stop there real quick. So this sounded familiar to me because there's a laziness and entitlement present in sign seekers that I also see in bigots. The kind who will engage in behaviors like sea lioning or soliciting emotional labor from uh, people on the margins without Googling or doing any real research. People that want everything explained to them without having to do any great amount of work. I saw a perfect example of this uh, this week when Public Square Magazine released this open letter titled Honest Questions About Race for Fellow Disciples. Aside from the sea lining and the, uh, this, this, the sea lining in the title and uh, throughout the piece, there's also several logical fallacies and demonstrable entitlement and laziness throughout the piece. For example, 
The authors suppose themselves entitled to the emotional labor of people who are directly affected by this stuff rather than do their own research. And uh, they also quote John McHorder, a black man who is an outlier. They quote him more than once to argue the points that they make as they ask their supposedly honest questions. This That tells me that they deliberately sought outlying voices because the majority of academics and other thinkers who basically make a living talking about race, they don't think like John McHorder at all. Uh, how in all of your research about race and CRT and how to talk about race, how do you end up quoting a grifter like John McHorder twice? How do you end up not knowing the definitions of racism that people are using? Like all this shows a failure to demonstrate a minimum level of investment in the conversation at hand and an expectation that whoever shows up to this open invitation to converse caters to your ignorance and lack of preparedness. It's lazy and it's rude, bro. Like why, why would you do that to people? This is, this is what sign seekers do though. They, they don't demonstrate the minimum investment in the gospel required. Like look at what verse 11 says again, signs come by faith unto mighty works. Signs require work on our part, otherwise we don't esteem them for the manifestations of the divine that they are. Yes, we amen. see in scriptures that signs were given that signs were given uh to the unfa to the unfaithful and it was ultimately to their condemnation. Laman and Lemuel, Korahor, and in uh, 3 Nephi 2 verse 1 we read that many began to be less and less astonished at a sign or wonder from heaven insomuch that they began to be hard in their hearts and blind in their minds and began to disbelieve all which they had heard and seen signs don't work for people not trying to do the work and it's the same with bigots these folks who wrote this public square article i know at least one of them is a hypocrite in the request for dialogue with other disciples because i literally watched him get challenged for his homophobic views and then run away from the conversation I believe that even if I did come to them and engage them in conversation about this issue, the chances of them getting the results they're seeking are very low because one, they might get uncomfortable and bow out of the conversation or because they're not actually doing the work. Someone else is spoon feeding them and that's just not a sustainable, let alone ethical way to go about racial reconciliation work, soliciting free labor from folks that have already done the work so that you don't have to do it. It's, it's messed up. Yeah, two things come to mind. One is our transgender friends. Like, they are always asked for signs. Like, literally, mm -hmm. I've heard people say there should be people stationed outside bathrooms to check people's genitals to make sure they're going in the right restroom. The quote, right Dude. restroom. Right? That, that is sign-seeking behavior. It does not exhibit any type of social trust or understanding or empathy or compassion it is just nonsense mm -hmm. people trying to support their own understanding of the way the world should be and what makes the world pretty another right. example is our disabled friends right like there's people with mm -hmm. visible or invisible disabilities who ask for accommodations and then people want to know people want to have proof people want to have a sign people want to uh right. you don't right need to have a sign in order to believe people when they say that they need a particular kind of support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It ends up just being Korahor, right? He asked for a sign. Yeah, it's Korahor. We know how that story ended. Right. <laughs>
So, so yeah, you're right. There's there's just a lot of sign-seeking behavior, trying to shortcut the process, trying to not do the work. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, if they want to, sh- if they want to, um, you know, short the circuit, the process, and not do the work, a lot of the work has already been done. Like, yeah. if you want to learn about critical race theory, don't ask your LDS friends of color like there's stuff been, that's been written for 40 years if you want to engage critiques there all are already critiques from within within mm-hmm. critical that's why it's called critical race theory we have critical thinking that's applied to this it's mm-hmm. not a dogma it's not dogmatic race theory right. so yeah there the work's been done yeah right. this this essay was really really it's not so much f- frustrating as it is uh, exposing their own entitlement and their own misconceptions of CRT and their own fragility and their own mm-hmm. way they think the world is pretty. And you know, that article mm-hmm. talked about the family. They're like, oh, well, critical race theory is going to hurt the family. I'm like, dude, okay. that word family, how people use the word family, that is one of the most misused and weaponized words in our it entire family. I'm going to say later in this episode that the word family is the most manipulative word in our church. Oh, I am ready. We'll talk I about that ready. more later. Let's go ahead and move on to the next uh, part we want to address. Do you want to say anything about uh, verses uh, 23? Yes. So here's verses 23 and 24 together. But unto him that keepeth my commandments, I will give the mysteries of my kingdom. And the same shall be in him a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. And now, behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste, lest there should be confusion, which bringeth pestilence. I wanted to say a couple of things. I like the emphasis here on keeping commandments. I think that... We're not structured by dogma. Like, even our doctrine can change. Like, we're more organized by our commandments than by our doctrine, I think. So it's the keeping the commandments that ends up being the central piece. We don't have a systematic theology. I know people have tried, but it really doesn't quite work out, at least for me, to my satisfaction. But that's where the mysteries of the kingdom comes in. The mysteries of the kingdom come as as a relevant and matching consequence to the keeping of the commandments. And culturally, in our church, we seem to have a lack of mystery and wonder, but I think queer people can bring this back. Mystery involves humility. It involves curiosity. It involves all of these things that you need in order to fully incorporate the queer people into a Zion community. And this is exactly what verse 24 is talking about, building Zion together. I love what Blair Ostler said in their recent book, Queer Mormon Theology. Oh, you got your copy. Yes, I did. Um, I've, Congratulations. I've, I have finished reading it. And we should talk about this another episode once we've both had time to really digest and, uh, and make You just it. got the book and you're already finished with it? Yes. Oh, man, I hate you for that. Let me just pause and say, this book is great. Everyone should go out and check this out. Uh, it is very, what is the word? Um, 
I think it is very useful for people new to the queer theology conversation, especially non-queer people. This book mm-hmm. will will help to empower queer people, but it will also, I think, probably have a greater impact with helping straight and cisgender folks understand that Mormon theology already is queer. We just have to live into that potential. But here's what Blair Osler said. They said on page 27, I imagine Zion as a community held together with love, not fear. And the way they Mm -hmm. put this was so beautiful. You can't really have a true Zion if you've got fear. It has to be held together with love. And later on, Osler talks about diversity and talks about schisms and talks about what an actual egalitarian Zion would look like. And it's not conformity of dogma. We don't all have to believe the same same things, but we do have to make room for the just treatment of all people. And that's really what Zion is about. And Zion comes as a result of keeping the commandments, to love God, to love your neighbor, and all these other commandments that I have said that I'm going to enumerate them all. I've already got, <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, so that's that's really I wa- all I wanted to say is keeping the commandments, building up Zion, making room for love, and making room for mystery. Mm-hmm. And just as a kind of a footnote to this, I just want to say that uh, in my, like in my reading of the book so far, I just, uh, my testimony of being able to understand Christ from the margins was further deepened. Like this is something I already knew, but it's something I still think about pretty regularly in terms of how much it is required to understand folks on the margins in order to understand Jesus. Like Jesus identified so hard and so strongly with the margins that he actually said, in as much as you have done it unto the, the mm-hmm. least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So I just wanted to briefly bear testimony to the fact that we cannot understand Jesus the way we are meant to solely from our privileged perspectives. Right. Uh, James Cone once said that trying to understand Jesus or trying to understand Christianity from a white point of view is like trying to understand Jesus from a Roman point of view. It just doesn't happen. Like We can't fully appreciate and come to understand who Christ is, what he stood for, and what discipleship to him looks like if we don't learn to read him, understand him, and see him the way that people on the margins mm. do. It is them, as uh, Howard Thurman once said, that have the most to teach us about who Christ is and what he represents. So yeah. I'll just put that in there as my plug for making sure that you get Blair Osler's book uh, as like, again, I'm only about halfway through it right now, but I already feel like I am going to have a much deeper understanding and appreciation for Christ and his atonement mm-hmm. because I am learning how folks um, from the margins of, you know, people who are queer, how they read and how they understand Christ. Yeah, th- that's another thing that was so frustrating about this public square article is they pulled the the oldest trick in the book like why can't you be like the the good black people like dr king like Woo! first of all Woo! oh yeah Woo! so <laughs> there's, there's a couple of like 10 different problems with that but one of them is this idea that the feelings of white people should by be prioritized over the justice that's due and the reparations that are mm-hmm. due to folks of color. Mm-hmm. And they said, mm-hmm. well, they're talking about like 
calling out and canceling and all these other things that, oh, that's just causing division and it will turn away white people. I'm like, yeah, there's, oh, there's so many things wrong with that. But when they, when they invoke the memory of Dr. King, they forgot what white people did to Dr. King. They literally killed him. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. jailed him. They beat him. They threatened his family and they eventually killed Mm -hmm. him. Like, Mm -hmm. if you want black people to be like Dr. King, well, you're not going to like that, right? You're not going to like right. the actual Dr. King, right? And I think most of my heroes, I just realized, and, and some people have said this about me, oh, Derek, that you're you're hyperbolic and that, you're, uh, and that you put pressure on people and that you do this and it's divisive. But here's my theory is that every role model I had, let's look at Jesus. He spoke in such a way that made people want to kill him. Mm-hmm. Paul the Apostle spoke in such a way that made people want to kill him. Dr. King spoke and acted in a way that made people want to kill him. Joseph Smith spoke and acted in a way that people wanted to kill him. So my theory is if I'm sitting here on Facebook and no one wants to kill me, I am not doing my job. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's got to be people who, who, if I'm doing my job right, they're going to block me. They're going to expel me from their Facebook groups. They're going mm-hmm. to do all sorts of stuff because what I'm saying is threatening their pretty picture of the way supremacy is supposed to look. Well, 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 well. Well, yeah. So there's there's <laughs> like so many dozens of things wrong with this article, but that's just one of them that I needed to name in light of what you were saying about Christ in the margins. Like yeah, he went you. to the margins so profoundly that if we want to find Christ, we need to go to the margins too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to move on to talking just a. hopefully I can make this point pretty brief about sec, about verse 40. There's a, numerous texts within this section that talk about the law of consecration, talk about financially contributing to the community. Just one of them is this verse. Verse 40, and let all the monies which can be spared, it mattereth not unto me, whether it be little or much, be sent up unto the land of Zion, unto them whom I have appointed to receive. So we've got Kirtland saints being asked to contribute, and some were asked to contribute more. We've got specific people named throughout these sections that were asked to contribute specific things. And I want to talk to something that I don't really engage much with, quote, religious studies. There's a difference between theology and religious studies that I think our listeners should know. Mm-hmm. Religious studies is the more, oh, I hate to say neutral, but it is the more observation-based, descriptive only study of religion. It's about the culture and the religion and um, the history of the religion. It's about the texts of the religion. It is basically not coming from a standpoint of belief or disbelief. You are just describing like an anthropologist what's going on. Right. And theology comes from a faith commitment. I do much more theology than religious studies. I'm in dialogue with some descriptive work, but I'm much more around let's interpret the scriptures from a standpoint of faith but it, it but it is helpful to uh, to look at some of our results from religious studies that are purely descriptive without judging whether something is good or bad. They're just, just saying it the way it is. 
And it has mm -hmm. to do with this idea of costly signaling that can happen in high-demand religions. There okay. is a problem because religions offer a social and communal benefit to people. What could happen is what we call a free rider problem. That is someone who is not a believer, not fully committed to the system, ending up being part of the community and reaping the benefits of being a part of the community, yet don't actually contribute. And so this is the free rider problem. And one one way that uh, sociologists have looked at this, and I'm going to be drawing upon Lawrence Yanacone, Why Strict Churches Are Strong in the American Journal of Sociology. And what happens is that high-demand religions put higher costs on their members and their potential members, and this screens out potential free riders. And here are some examples of these costly signals. They are hard-to-fake signals of commitment to the community. Things like tithing or consecration, circumcision. Oh, that's a costly signal, right? Like, no <laughs> one's going to get circumcised unless they're committed, unless they're all in. The word of wisdom right. and garments, these are also costly signals. And these costly signals simultaneously distance members from outside communities. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. For example, if if I wanted to just like go to an Amish community and get supported by the Amish folks, well, there's a lot of stuff I would have to change. I would have to change my dress. I would have to change my use of technology. I would have to change my career. I would have to change my where I live. There's just so many restrictions in place that if I, well, you would think, oh, well, just fake it, like just. But the thing is, you can't really fake it because all of these things that you have to do will have a public cost. It means that participating in this particular community means that I will be uh, self-excluding from other communities. I won't be able to just drive off and, and go to the bar with my friends and talk on the phone, right, as, as mm -hmm. someone who's publicly Amish. So my point is that these signals really are hard to fake unless you really believe them and unless you're really committed to them mm -hmm. and people say well this is kind of why would you rationally if it's most rational people want to maximize their benefit and minimize their cost why are people increasing their cost so it sounds counterintuitive but this type of system results in tangible benefits to the members and these benefits outweigh the cost it seems because once you have a core of highly committed members who have displayed their investment in one another and their trust in one another, they engage in much more resource sharing. They engage in much more pro-social behavior. They are willing to sacrifice for one another. So there are benefits to this. That's why, you know, the elders, they move my stuff, right? When I have to move, like, you mm -hmm. get the whole elders quorum up in here and pack my boxes uh, or and transport them uh, you know that's that's only one of the many tangible benefits of being in a high demand religious community mm -hmm. and i think consecration definitely is that when the lord asked people to contribute financially to the community it isn't because the lord of the universe didn't have any money like the lord <laughs> could miracle dollars from wherever he wants right mm -hmm. but i think having a core of highly invested people who've made sacrifices for one another who have demonstrated loyalty to the community ends up being 
a much better community. Right. And I think that is the real secret behind a lot of these things that are costly signals. And yeah, and I agree. They are costly signals. And a lot of them can be tough. But in the end, it may be rational for people to participate in the community with this level of buy-in. I just want to mm -hmm. say one more thing about costly signaling. It might explain why certain gay members of our church enter into incompatible orientation marriages, mm -hmm. right? That is probably one of the biggest symbols. Like when I hear that a gay man is about to marry a woman in order to fulfill the Mormon dream— right he's probably engaging in a one of the most costly signals one that's very hard to fake right yeah, yeah. you know people right. might be able to fake the word of wisdom like you know just secretly have coffee when no one's looking but you can't <laughs> fake the marrying someone you're not compatible with yeah i think having an ec rational explanation as to why people are engaging in this behavior can help explain it, which means then we know why they're doing it, which means then we know why it doesn't make sense to pressure other people into doing it too. Because people say, well, look at this guy. He must be so faithful and he must be, well, that's because he's reaping the communal benefits of making this costly sacrifice. And it's not totally because he is altruistic and wanting to just do this certain thing, it is there are social benefits to cooperating with the injustice. And that doesn't mean that there's no right. injustice. Right. Just because you can find some token gay men to go along with something doesn't mean that it's okay. I think that's the payoff of looking at it this from the costly signaling point of view. Because then you realize these gay men are highly motivated to do this thing, and they actually have a self-interest in doing it. Mm -hmm. Let's go on to something very interesting about section uh, 63, verse 55. And this is uh, what it says. And now, behold, verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, am not pleased with my servant Sidney Rigdon. He exalted himself in his heart. And received not counsel, but grieved the spirit. Wherefore, his writing is not acceptable unto the Lord, and he shall make another. And if the Lord receive it not, behold, he standeth no longer in the office to which I have appointed him. Now, what's going on here? Let's talk a little bit about the context behind this. So, in section 58, Sidney Rigdon was um, commissioned, officially commissioned by the voice of the Lord to do something. It says, uh, this is verse 50 of section 58, And I give unto my servant Sidney Rigdon a commandment that he shall write a description of the land of Zion and a statement of the will of God, as it shall be made known by the Spirit unto him. So he's commissioned by God. He has an office ordained of God. He's promised the Spirit to give him this thing that he will write. What could go wrong, right? Think about how we culturally... Look at our general authorities. I suspect that Sidney Rigdon might have been the number two or number three most authoritative uh, voice in the church, the one with the most seniority except for uh, Joseph Smith and perhaps Oliver Cowdery at this point. So you would think, oh, a general authority, 
given a commission by God, given the promise of the Spirit to do it right, well, it's just going to auto automatically be nearly infallible, right? And nope, that's not what happened. Not what happened at all. It says, the Lord said, um, his writing is not acceptable unto the Lord. Here you have a, maybe it's anachronistic to call him a general authority, but here you have a general authority writing something and it's not right. And why is it not right? Because he exalted himself in his heart. He received not counsel and grieved the spirit, even though he was promised that the spirit would be helping him write this, he still exalted himself. And mm. what was wrong with this? Well, his description of Zion digressed into this fiery apocalyptic uh, call for judgment, right? And call to repentance. And there was long convoluted sentences and flowery prose. And that's not what, what the Lord wanted. The Lord wanted a basic description of Zion. Mm -hmm. And Sidney, out of the the pride and his own self of an, a sense of entitlement and his own sense of, like, this is the way it should be and his own prejudices and his own biases and his own personality put something in there that the spirit didn't want. Now, I shouldn't, mm -hmm. I shouldn't really judge Sidney Rigdon too much because I do the same thing. I talk on way longer than what the spirit probably wants me to say, right? <laughs> And James probably knows this more than anyone else. Like, that's where those three-hour videos come from. It comes from the sense <laughs> of Derek exalting himself, right? Um, <laughs> Derek's got to explain everything. Yeah, he just explain has to explain everything. everything. Well, anyway, so that wasn't what uh, the Lord wanted. And the Lord says here in section 53, look, a general authority can be wrong. A general authority can be wrong in something they were commissioned to do by God and promised to have the Spirit with them to do it, uh, to help them do it, right? So let's talk about another someone who has authority in the Woo! church, wrote something that probably thought he was proud of, thought he was doing a good thing, but the Spirit isn't in it. And what his writing ended up being is not acceptable unto the Lord. And, of course, I'm talking about Elder Tad Callister's uh, really, really problematic piece. Like, I don't Yo. know how this got past Yo. any person with decency in the editorial office. Yo, this thing was such a mess, bro. Yeah, such but a freaking on mess. several levels in terms of race and also in terms of, quote, the family and, and gender and orientation— he said the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. So what are your reactions to this? Do we want to even read a, a quote from it? Let's read a quote from it. I about to say, I, there's a couple things I could read from this. Um, <laughs> I was already, like from, from the jump, from the first paragraph of this, of this article, I was already like, where where is he about to go with this? What is where is he about to go with this? First paragraph he asks if you were asked what is the greatest challenge facing our nation today, how would you respond? And then he lists off all these things that are valid concerns, valid challenges. Things like uh I think he says racism, the pandemic, he says poverty and crime, climate mm -hmm. change, I believe is mentioned mm -hmm. there. And then he says those right. are valid concerns but I don't believe any of them strike at the heart of our greatest challenge. And the greatest challenge, according to him, is a return to family and moral values, at which point I'm just like, skirt, what, what is this exactly? Like, I'm hoping that he's going to define 
what family and uh, moral values are. Like, it feels like a bit of a stretch when he says that, but I was, I'll admit, I was anxious to hear him out. Because to be able to connect family and moral values to practical solutions to things like racism and poverty, uh, immigration, climate change, this pandemic we're living through, and whatever else he mentioned, that would actually be super helpful. So I was like, where are you going with this, Ted? Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? And as I said before, simply preaching love and other Christian values, that's not adequate to address these ills he's mentioned. So I'm actually at this point, I'm a little excited that he might actually be talking about how each of these things, you know, connects to family and moral values. Preaching charity has not translated alone into any policy or uh, or strategy in dealing with racism on Mm -hmm. the part of the church or its members. So I thought we would get that from Elder Callister. I really did. Not the case. Not the case. He didn't really define. He never really defined what these moral and family values were. And that made everything that come after this first paragraph feel like a uh, a desnat dog whistle. Because the very next paragraph yeah. of this, he goes to the family proclamation. Which wouldn't be that big of a deal if he didn't quote the parts deliberately weaponized against LGBTQ folks. It seemed like a really, really hard pivot to basically imply that marriage between a man and a woman is necessary to combat these social ills, and it felt like a real missed opportunity to engage in some real dialogue, some real theology on values that we need to be reminding of our, reminding ourselves of in order to contribute to the bettering of society. Again, Callister, he never, he never really defines these moral and family values. Instead, he quotes the parts of the family proclamation I just mentioned, mm. and then he quotes a man of ill repute in Bill Barr, the former attorney general of this country, who improperly correlates things like the rise of out-of-wedlock births with a rise in abortions, which is demonstrably false. Like, the other policies implicated here as, quote, uh, underwriting morality are data-driven. They're data-driven. They've been researched, and the evidence shows that they work. Abortion rates have been going down for 40 years. Safe injection sites reduce overdose and increase access to health services. Families hit hard by poverty, unemployment, lack of home ownership, and more, which, by the way, disproportionately affects people of color. They've been helped by welfare programs. I am a recipient of a free lunch program, by the way. Like, And remember that one of the reasons that the government is stepping in is because people are not. People are not stepping in. People are not rising up to these Mm -hmm. quote-unquote family and moral values. We wouldn't need to have a conversation on something like reparations or affirmative action and the like if people took it upon themselves to actually heed the moral values of repentance, of restitution, of charity, and more. Yet Elder Callister is out here like, he would have us believe that things, that these data-driven government programs are tools of Satan that perpetuate harm and encourage irresponsible behavior. But, you know, we're not done there. Like, that's, Elder Callister doesn't leave us there. Like, he comes back to the family proclamation again, saying things like uh, pro-choice is a satanic label, that wanting uh, LGBTQ folks, wanting for them what I believe to be my birthright is wrong and a, quote, attack on the family and its survival. Like, we've we've spoken extensively on this show about why this is wrong. I'm not going to say any more about that. But, uh... Yeah, he doesn't even uh, quote the proclamation correctly. 
right? He like there's of course there's my take on the proclamation, but he doesn't even he isn't even faithful to the proclamation in its original mm-hmm. context and its original intent, because he's saying like look at all these other problems with with poverty and guns. Like we don't need any government help with that. We just need to have stronger families, mm-hmm. and then those. But no, that that's not what the proclamation does. If you literally look, the proclamation says, and he quotes this, so he's without excuse. He says, he quotes it, and the proclamation clearly says, we call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family. So it's not just about giving people some like spiritual moral strength to their family. It's about policies and structures and institutions that are designed to strengthen the family. Mm-hmm. And what are these policies? Well, let's talk about this. Guns destroy families. Poverty destroys families. Incarceration destroys families. Pandemics destroys families. Homophobia destroys families. Systemic injustice destroys families. Police brutality destroys families. Like, if you want to literally obey, not my weirdo version of the proclamation, but if you want to be faithful to the proclamation of what it's saying, it says... As it's written. It's designed to say the government, we need government help. It says we need government help. We call on government. Exactly. That's what it says. So Elder Callister, like he didn't, not only did he not do his gender studies, he didn't even do a close reading of what the proclamation actually says. Mm-hmm. And having families be more moral won't fix police brutality or guns or, or poverty. Yeah, there's just so many more things I could say. I didn't even talk about the homophobia piece yet. Let me just quote what he says. I got to find this. Okay. This is this is this is priceless. Okay. Here he is so proud of himself. He is so proud of himself, just like Sidney Rigdon right here. He is going way beyond what he needs to do. Way beyond what he needs to do. Here's what it says. Here's he's talking about Satan, okay? And this is this is I think quite abusive and quite manipulative where he we he invokes the Satan piece to, to scare people. Let's go back to what Blair Ostler said. Zion needs to be built based on love, not on fear. And Callister's trying to shortcut the process and close off the conversation before it even gets started mm-hmm. by calling me a Satan, essentially, um, because I endorse same-sex marriage, and apparently that's a satanic plot. So here's what... Elder Callister says about Satan, his plan is in direct opposition to the family proclamation. It is an insidious attempt to destroy the nuclear family and God's moral values. I want to stop here and let's talk about nuclear family for a second because Mm -hmm. that's where the word family becomes very manipulative. People have a pretty picture in their head of a, I'm going to say it, a white family. They have a pretty white family with a mommy and a daddy and three to seven kids and maybe a dog. <laughs> and they have lovely pictures of them outdoors with the sun shining through their hair on Instagram or Facebook. And you have this pretty, that's not what family is according to the Bible. You don't even have, okay, I can't even think of a Greek or Hebrew word that you would translate as nuclear family. That concept didn't even exist until yeah. like... Like this mom, dad, and 2.4 kids, mm-hmm. that's not a family. That mm-hmm. is not a biblical family. And where was like, Jesus' nuclear the... family in his adult life? 
Right. Like, Jesus, with his itinerant band of disciples, created a new understanding of family. The local congregation was a new understanding of family. Like, Mm -hmm. the the closest words I can think of would be bayat in Hebrew and oikia in Greek, but those mean household. And the household Mm -hmm. biblically included grandparents, it included cousins, it included uh, multiple wives, it included maidservants, it included manservants, it included enslaved people. That was the mm-hmm. biblical household. It's not a nuclear. There's no nuclear there. So right. I don't know what what he's doing is he's actually just going based on more on his cultural biases. The pretty picture that he got when he was raised in maybe post-war America. I'm not even sure exactly how old he is. But that's what he was drinking all his life. He was not drinking the scriptures. So let's talk about the implication. Oh, I didn't even finish the paragraph that I was was saying. Okay, (laughs) So it is an insidious attempt to destroy the nuclear family and God's moral values. He disguises his plan of attack with alluring labels of love and compassion for endorsement of same-sex marriage. And then he says it's a goes on to say that it's this constitutes a frontal attack on the family unit and its survival. No, it doesn't. Like what? How? Homophobia and transphobia destroy families. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, anyway. And here's... The evidence is not in his favor at all. Again, this is one of those things where we can demonstrate, we can show evidence that the family, that like letting these families thrive or like granting marriage equality actually helps families thrive. It actually helps societies thrive. It helps children grow up in loving environments just... This is not substantiated by the evidence. So let me just say that I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm going to give a thousand dollar reward. Okay, I don't have a lot of money, but I'm going to put a thousand dollar reward on the line. Anyone in the world, if you can find one family that my homo nest destroyed, you get a thousand dollar reward. There's a thousand dollar reward out there on anyone who can find any family that I've destroyed because of my gayness. What really destroys families is making people get married to someone they're not attracted to. Then you've got a wife and kids. You've got a husband and kids, and then that falls apart. That's destroyed. Like, I just don't understand where he's coming from here. And here's, I think, the most offensive part. He says, these solutions are nothing less than time bombs wrapped with glitter and a glamorous bow. Now, he, I don't know if he knows that glitter is a historically liberative queer uh, symbol. Like, glitter is what kept us alive. Glitter is what what helped us find each other. Uh, I'm, I'm serious mm-hmm. about this. You do not mess with the glitter. Do not mess with, with the glitter, okay? That is, that is, like, one of the most sacred symbols of the queer mm-hmm. community. And he is using it, saying that Satan is is concealing something awful with something that looks pretty. And and here's what I what I want everyone to notice is he's talking about queer people in the third person. Mm-hmm. He's not speaking to me in in the second person, saying, "You, Derek, here's what I want you to do, or here's what you should do, or here's what I think God wants for you, or here here's how God loves you." And here's the co-. he speaks about. Same-sex marriage as if we're not in the room, as if we're not reading this. 
And let's talk about that. There's something problematic because what they're telling me when they speak about me in the third person and not in the second person is that they're not actually proud of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I really think deep down they know they're wrong. It sounds counterintuitive because they sound so confident, just like Sidney Rigdon was so caught up in his lack of humility, his, his pride and his uh, self-centeredness. Deep down, I think they know they're wrong. As strong as their bluff may be, they aren't fully confident in the totality of what they're trying to do and all of the implications around it. Mm -hmm. They really don't know what they want to do. They don't want to talk about this in a in a public forum where the where, where they're going to get held accountable for it, where they're going to get asked questions. They don't want questions on this. Mm -hmm. You would think that if they were proud of it, they would love questions. How about if they really wanted to to prove to the world that they're a prophet of the Lord? They would come up with a panel. They would say, I want every gay person in, in the country to line up here. We're going to answer all your questions mm -hmm. because we speak from the Lord and we've got answers for you. They're, they don't do that. They do not make themselves vulnerable to questions. But anyway, so they say things and they say the worst things in the third person. And what do they say in the second person? Oh, God loves you and God has a plan. That's all they say. They don't, they don't pretend that they know everything when they talk to us in the second person. It's only when they think we're not in the room that they have all this confidence. And sometimes they're brazen enough to say it to your face. And in that case, it's just, I mean, it's even worse. Yeah, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, we've that. seen this, Derek. Like, we've seen people I do this they, with you in the room. Oh, yeah. I'm. Oh. They knew you were in the room. They knew. Like, yeah. that's just, I don't know. I would chalk that up to something a little different. Maybe perhaps the confidence of privilege or whatever just i don't know people with privilege just tend to think that what they have to say what they think is so important that they can just say it in front of people who are on the margins even if those people on the margins like yeah. you have more education yeah. and more yeah. experience well anyway my point is that that they really haven't i don't even think they fully demonstrate confidence in what they're saying they haven't really thought through it enough to, to even realize what they're saying. No, they haven't. And so they're like the boy who cried wolf, right? They've been saying the same things, and it's it's worn down its effect. It's not it's not believable anymore. They've been bluffing so long that we can see through it, and they've really lost the legim le the legitimacy to speak on these issues. And I think that's kind of where I want to leave this with, because there's so much more I could say about what was problematic. And we didn't even get into the, the racism of what's in Elder Callister's uh, piece about um, not he doesn't go out and attack Black Lives Matter by name. But everything he's saying is is against Black Lives Matter. Uh, well, I'm, what I'm the, here, what, Derek. I, I like to speak to it. Yeah. So, uh like, I, I want to take this with his uh, last paragraph here. Um, and this is one that has what you would call, Derek, several kernels of truth. Like, I, I can't find a lot wrong with this paragraph out of context. Let me just go ahead and read it real quick. It says, if our prime focus is to promote family and moral values, then we will experience the consequences that flow from such efforts. Less crime and drug abuse, less fraud and abuse, fewer divorces and lawsuits, fewer babies born out of wedlock, more ethical employees and employers, a reduction in welfare cases, less contention and hate, and a resurgence of faith in God. Then 
we will have a solid foundation upon which to build a society entitled to God's blessings. Then we will have a fence at the top of the cliff rather than the need for an ambulance at the bottom, close quote. Now, out of context, I don't take too much issue with this, though I do think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not defining what these values are and discussing practical applications of those same values that these realities might be realized. After all, telling the saints to root out racism or to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, as President Nelson has uh, counseled us last year, that hasn't really, again, translated into any kind of strategy or policy on the part of the church, nor has it sufficiently stirred the church members to involve themselves in activities, initiatives, or any other efforts to get racism out of our pews and our nation. There, there's nothing all that new or groundbreaking or prophetic in this paragraph, but I do believe it to an extent. That is until Callister kind of messes that up with the next paragraph, talking about how the colonists understood these principles, at which point I wanted to throw my phone because I'm just like, really, bro, you're going to you're going to cite the colonists, the people that glutted themselves on the labor of enslaved Africans who they tore from their families and denied personhood, the people who exterminated and displaced millions of natives. You, you, you can't tell me the colonists understood what was required to get less crime as they murdered a people and stole their land. You can't tell me they understood what it took to reduce abuse when they enslaved an entire population of people based on their skin color. And then in his next paragraph, he tries to pull a similar trick by saying things that are true, but again, still blow the dog whistle. He says no government program or policy can compensate for lack of strong families and moral values, close quote. And in the moment, I, I don't disagree with that, except to say that Callister has already invalidated anything other than a traditional family model. I also got to say that depending on what your values are, strong families and moral values won't compensate for a lack of solid programs and policy either. There's no adequate, this is what he says next, there's no adequate substitute or replacement for them. They are sacred cement that holds our society together as a nation. I'm, I'm done with that paragraph. But like, again, this is the whole kernel of truth thing that is happening. I can't disagree with a lot of this out of context. But in the context of what he is saying, we have to acknowledge that there are things that are not being said that need to be addressed. And the ending of this whole thing was the cherry on top for me because with one word, Elder Callister blows the dog whistle one more time, and he fulfills a prophecy by Martin Luther King Jr. himself. He said, um, oh, what do he say? Okay, here it is. Quote, hopefully we will be arch defenders of the nuclear family and God's moral values. Close quote. There's that egregiously, first of all, there's that egregiously vague talk of values again. Values, by the way, which have changed over the years as well as the invocation of the nuclear family, which didn't always exist. And again, you said is, in a, is something we misuse in a very manipulative fashion constantly throughout the church. But Callister uses a very interesting word here. He uses the word arch defender, a word that might galvanize the likes of Desnet and the like. But the other place I remember this word from, like most... Uh, most powerfully, is the letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, you see that in a condemnation of those who defend the status quo or refuse to uh, fight against it in strong terms that unequivocally condemn specific sins, in that case, racism. Uh, MLK said, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It's so often the arch defender 
of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are, close quote. It feels like Callister is literally encouraging us to be that church that Reverend King is telling us not to be, an arch defender of a morality that requires prejudice in order to be moral. But it's this kind of attitude that I feel will push the church into further decline. And look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s next paragraph, because he, he seemed to think so too, um, based on what he wrote. So this is the next paragraph, right after he just talked about the problem of defending, being an arch defender of the status quo. This is the next paragraph. Quote, but the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. In today's church, if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Close quote. This is what I believe Elder Callister risks doing with this article. I, he, he risks alienating folks who are already disappointed in us as a church. When you support or when you build so much of your identity on morals rooted in prejudice, young people will find you impotent or in uh, the words of MLK, irrelevant, disappointing, and disgusting. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. If our solution to some of the world's most pressing problems basically amounts to strengthen the family, but be mean to the gays and demonize government programs that seek to balance scales that the colonists themselves imbalanced in the first place, then our future is going to be trouble. It's going to be in a lot of trouble. We are going to continue to be on the decline as a church. We are so much better than what Elder Callister has shown, so much better than what he's written. This article is usually, is literally a huge reason why I don't necessarily fault anybody for not wanting to listen to straight white males born in the Jim Crow era talk for 10 hours about how to deal with racism or what to do with queer folks. Like, I get it. So we have a responsibility as members of the church, as the rest of the church, to be voices that show that we are not what Elder Callister is making us out to be. We are not a people whose morality depends on the dispossession and dehumanization of marginalized groups. We actually can be relevant. We can be potent. We can be a church that actually ministers to the needs of these folks. But if we like, but if we don't acknowledge the words of emeritus general authorities like Callister, if we don't, if we don't, uh, acknowledge these words for what they are and the harm that they cause, then, you know, we're not necessarily doing our part as a church, as members of the restored gospel, as disciples of the same Jesus Christ who minister to the marginalized to breathe the life into this church that needs to be present for us to, in fact, build the Zion that we are supposed to build, the build the Zion that they actually talk about at this point in the narrative, where the mm. law of consecration is possible, where people are viewed as, you know, equal, where people are cared for, where the poor and the needy are looked after, and where eventually, I hope, we can actually uh, value people regardless of their orientation and, you know, the color of their skin, of their ability, of their gender, whatever else. So, yeah, yeah I think that's all I want to say about that. And I, I think what's, what's really telling is this is the exact type of behavior see when abusers lose control of the narrative. Yeah. What he's trying to do is he, he doesn't cite any good reason for, for being against same-sex marriage. He's just now bluffing and saying, oh, it's of Satan. I think he is um, 
very much threatened and fragile. And that's exactly why the word arch defender is there. The only time you need to be an arch defender is when you feel threatened and fragile and just completely um, stressed by the fact that something new and beautiful and different is breaking into the world. And that's why nucle yeah, nuclear family, um, I've said this already maybe twice, but yeah, family is the most manipulative word we have in our vocabulary. It's about who gets to define family. And the biblical model of family is a chosen family, and Blair Osler talks about this to, uh, in their book. And so here's what I want everyone to do. Whenever you hear a leader in the church use the word family, think about the power behind it. Like, what are they trying to do with the word family? Whose interest are they trying to secure when they use the word family? Are they trying to accumulate power to themselves and their ideas by using the word family? Are they just using the word family to get you to go along with what they're saying? Right? And you can see this all throughout Elder Callister's article. Every time he uses the word fa uh, family, he's really, I think, doing more for himself than he's doing for families. He is trying to change the landscape to make himself seem as though he's got the upper hand morally, that he's pro-family and like, oh, because who's going who's gonna to want to say that they don't like families? You know, well, Jesus is the one who said he didn't like families, right? Yeah, I was just going to add a witness to what you just said. We literally have an account of Jesus. He defined family by, you know, disregarding his own family and then pointing to his disciples saying, these people who actually do what I right. say, yeah. that's my family. Like the best this example dude, of that is in Jesus uh, Christ bucked all kinds three. of conventions, including so, um, that of family. Go ahead and so read that. You just should. to add another witness to what you just said, you Jesus was not pro-family in the sense that so, um, we uh, tend to define yeah, family I, today I look forward or what to... it means to be pro-family today building a Zion community that's that's rooted on love and not fear. And I think Elder Callister is just going with the fear. Yeah, it's really sad, not for me, like I'm not, I'm not in pain, but it's really sad that Elder Callister is depriving himself of, of getting, getting on board with something that's beautiful. He's the one that's going to on Judgment Day say, oh man, I missed out on that. I could have been part of a Zion community with beautiful people who are in the image of God, and I messed that up because I wasn't willing to be open to where the Spirit was moving the church. Shoot. I'm sad for him, but I'm sad for us too because this is just more work that we got to do. I like just really don't like when folks like this are given a platform and now we got to undo their bigotry in the name of Christ. It's a big step back for the church every time that somebody like him is given airtime. And that I do lament. I lament the energy I lost just to like process what this man wrote, process the effect it's going to have on, you know, my brothers and sisters on the margins and process, you know, just ah, like the fact that people like this are still giving a platform and that the church did not think to scrutinize this to the point where they just did not publish this. Like, they could have published a significantly more watered down of this version of this thing, but they don't. They didn't even seem to edit it. Like, that's what really bugs me, is that the church is talking about abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice, leaving racism in the dust, rooting out racism, stuff like that. And then they do this. Like, this is how 
th- th- this is why Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. condemned things like milk toast sermons and sanctimonious trivialities because you can say that you have a place here or that all are welcome or that we got to do something about racism all day long till the cows come home. But when y'all do stuff like this, when the church allows stuff like this to pass, I can't help but wonder how much you actually meant that. And yeah, and you can tell that they don't have queer people and people of color on their editorial team. Like the the real problem they the real never problem would have let this pass. Marginalized people in leadership, you're always going to ma- mess up. Anyway, so let's end it right there and let's let's pray for Elder Callister. Yeah. If we must, it's the right thing to do. That he can be redeemed for good in in uh in a short time yep you're a better man than me bro anyway before we go ahead and wrap things up just want to let y'all know that dialogue a journal of mormon thought is proud to offer two new podcast features the first is dialogue heritage which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situated in lds history more generally the second is dialogue book report which has discussion reviews and interviews about current lds fiction nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also Twitter and Instagram at btblds. And you can also find us on Facebook. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you guys are looking to uh, submit or, uh, sorry, contribute to the work that we're doing, our contributor page is still up. You can go to glow.fm slash beyondtheblock. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyondtheblock. If you want to make a financial contribution to the show, help us sustain this work that we're trying to do out here. We do appreciate everybody who has contributed in any way so far, whether that's been with your time, your efforts, your feedback, uh, your participation in the collaborator group, or, you know, your simple financial contributions. All of it is very helpful and helps us to sustain this work that we're doing. Looking forward to bringing you guys some more uh, content, some more interviews. Uh, We appreciate you guys that have made uh, all the interviews from the month of February and March possible. We kind of hit y'all with a bunch of them at once, but uh, we, you know, really enjoyed the opportunity to do all of those, enjoyed uh, the opportunity to speak to such cool people, and uh, y'all made that possible. So thank you so much for allowing us to, you know, do a little bit more than just the singular episode per week. Hopefully we'll be able to get you guys some uh, more of those because they are, you know, they teach us a lot and uh, they contribute a lot to the conversations that we want to be having and just otherwise lift up voices that we might not otherwise hear um so again thank you guys uh and if you want to again contribute in any way just let us know and uh, we'll be able to add you guys to the facebook collaborator group where you can uh, dialogue with us more directly uh tell us more about what you guys would like to see give us feedback about the show participate in other discussions communicate to derek with derek and i more directly or suggest the kind of content that you guys want to see uh, or uh you know people you want to have us on the show or people you want to see us have on the show um thank you guys who have thrown some names out there for us already we definitely appreciate that but uh yeah this work happens in large part because of what you guys are able to contribute so again thank you guys so much for making that happen and thank you guys for uh tuning in this week till we meet again next week till we meet again next week bye everyone